Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb. And we're back after another long hiatus. I'm, I'm good at some things in life, at least my mother tells me that, but updating the podcast on a regular basis, I think, uh, pretty clearly is not one of them. However, I'm going to make it up to you today with an exceptional guest. Uh, one of my best friends going back 20 years since college, and it just so happens that he's become one of the best baseball writers out there today. And we'll waste no time in going to the tape of the interview that I conducted with him not long ago. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, one of my best friends and the author of The Immaculate Inning, Mr. Joe Cox. Joe, how are you? I'm great, man. Anytime that I'm on the the Super 70 Sports Hotline, uh, I know the world is right. (laughs) <laughs> your second appearance uh, on the show because you were you were on uh, I believe it was last year talking about your previous book uh, about perfect games which was a tremendous book and, and of course the perfect game is one of the rarest feats in in, in baseball that, that anyone could accomplish and you've come back now with your follow-up uh, to that one with a book of various uh, incredible feats and, and, and rare accomplishments in baseball. Tell me how you decided that the Immaculate Inning and, and was going to be your next book and that this was going to be the angle that you were going to pursue. Sure. Uh, the title, of course, is one of 30 feats that I look at uh, over the book. And on the heels of Almost Perfect, I wanted to come back and do uh, the next book. My plan actually was to do a book on unassisted triple plays, uh, which has happened 15 or 16 times, depending on how you count. Seemed like a good number to work with uh, and a lot of odd stories. Uh, and I sent the idea off to my publisher. And this is usually the case with these things. They kind of go, well, we like it, but... And the but was... Instead of talking about one thing, let's talk about some more things. So 30 ended up being a nice round number. And I tried to pick an even divide between feats that were single game accomplishments. Some of them are on one particular pitch. Uh, and, and things that would take a longer streak or would be season long. There's nothing that goes longer than a year. There's not a, a chapter for, you know, 500 home runs or 3,000 hits. Everything is one season long at, at most and generally shorter. Again, half of them will be even single game. Uh, but the idea of, of getting into some of these things, defining what they are, uh, and then how rare are they, and, you know, trying to get into the history of baseball, going back into the 1870s and up to 2017, uh, and, and telling some of the stories behind some of these things. And if you if you love baseball, you love stories, if you love to write about baseball, you love to write stories, and the more I research, the more I found. Well, I, I love it. It's a terrific book. It's it's really a treasure trove of baseball history and tremendous accomplishments, oddities. I, I, I suppose it's fair to say uh, with some of these feats. And what I'd like to do during this podcast is to go through. Uh, many, if not all, of the various accomplishments that you chronicle uh, in the pages of the Immaculate Inning. And I think appropriately enough that we should start with the Immaculate Inning. And I know that probably some, if not many, of my listeners are curious about what an Immaculate Inning is. So, Joe Cox, tell us what is an Immaculate Inning and what is the history of it within the game of baseball? Well, the immaculate inning is kind of the most perfect inning imaginable. I mean, we, we've talked briefly in passing about the perfect game, uh, which is one of those elusive baseball feats. But an immaculate inning is a truly perfect inning in that the pitcher throws nine pitches, all nine are strikes, no ball is put into play. Occasionally you get an immaculate inning even without a foul ball. Um, How many of those have there been, by the way? 
I, I because I was well, going to ask you that. Question. Out of out of the ones in 2017, uh, I found two of the eight immaculate innings in 2017 were were those truly pure uh, immaculate innings, and, and one of them I talked to Drew Storen for the book, and, and Drew's was one of them. And, and the thing that struck him as funny is he said, "I used the same ball, and I rarely." <laughs> can get through a batter with the same ball, but but he used the same ball for all nine pitches. Are, are these guys, and, and I believe through 2017, and all the all the numbers that I'm going to mention are the numbers that we had as of when your book was published, which I believe is going to go through the 2017 MLB season. Uh, the notes here that I've written down, Joe, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of these numbers, but I have it written down that through the end of the last season, there have been 89 immaculate innings. Right, exactly, and and there were eight in 2017, which will tell you it's one of those odd feats that has become more common. It, it used to be fairly rare, uh, but with you know all the three true outcome baseball that you get these days, you're going to see probably more and more immaculate innings as time goes on, getting more common. And I would. I would think, I'm surprised actually, that it was chronicled that well back in the early days of baseball that they would even necessarily know because it's not like you can go back to 1910 and get accurate pitch counts and things like that. <laughs> uh, is, is the number 89, I mean, how, how confident are you that that's, that that's the number? Because the record-keeping in baseball in those early years really wasn't nearly what it is today. Yeah, it's probably not a perfectly accurate count, but it's it's what we know of. And that said, I was surprised by how many of the old immaculate innings we're aware of. I mean, in the book, I talk about the first one. Uh, it's Hall of Famer John Clarkson in 1889. Uh, and another one that I told a story of was a guy named Pat Reagan, who pitched one in 1914. Uh, Reagan stood out because he just started clowning on the mound. I mean, this is the dead ball era. Nobody misses pitches. And people start swinging and missing, and, and he's just going crazy celebrating on the mound. It's the kind of thing that would drive the purists crazy today. Uh, and, and he did it uh, then and pitched an immaculate inning. And that probably is how uh, we know about his, because his uh, his theatrics were great enough that the people said, you know, this is a, a strange thing that we need to chronicle here. But... Uh, you know, the, the, the baseball researchers do a pretty good job of digging this stuff up. Now, that said, are there probably 90, 91, 92? Well, yeah, and then they'll probably be ferreted out someday. But as best I could determine, the number's 89. <laughs> Were there any of the guys that you that you studied who, I would assume that that's in in contrast to the guy that you were talking about, it seems like it's one of those feats that you might not even really realize that you did it until somebody comes yeah. up to you later and tells you about it. Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's one of those. You, you get some of those draft book where people have those kind of stories. Well, and how about this? Here's a little uh, insider baseball here. You and I nearly witnessed an immaculate inning. In September of 1999, we were at a game where Randy Johnson missed it by one pitch. He had a 10-pitch inning where he struck out the side. And we didn't notice it at the time. If memory recalls, one of us had gone up into the concourse to, to get a hot dog or a tasty beverage or something and then came back. And <laughs> I, we were talking on the radio. He almost had an immaculate in. I was taking a leak. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> and they had the radio piped in there at Turner Field. And I heard, I don't know if it was Don Sutton or, or who it was, but somebody was mentioning. And I, I, I think under the circumstances, I'm actually kind of relieved that it was a 10-pitch inning because I think, uh, pardon the pun, I would have been really pissed if uh, I, had, I had missed history, actual history. So... I don't know. Maybe maybe it's better. Than that. <laughs> well, let's talk about some of the other feats, and there are so many. So, and if I don't touch on anything that uh, that you think is worthy of conversation, Joe, just guide me there. But uh, you you mentioned unassisted triple plays was was the original idea for this book before it was expanded into uh, you know the the variety of uh, of feats that it that it eventually came to be. Um, unassisted triple plays. The first thing that I'm going to ask you about is there's some debate over how many there have actually been. 15 or 16, de de depending on uh, who, who you ask. 
Tell me about the uh, controversial one that we're we're not positive about. The Paul Hines of the Providence Grays in 1878 may have turned an unassisted triple play or may not have. It depends entirely on the arcane scoring rules of the time. Uh, there were guys on second and third. They took off on the crack of the bat. Hines is playing shortstop. He makes a diving catch on a ball, hit out toward the outfield, jumps up, and the runners are so far gone that he just walks over and tags third base. Now, under the rules of the time, maybe because the runner who had been on second had already passed third by this point, maybe by tagging third base he turns an unassisted triple play. Hines adds to the confusion because he throws to second himself, as any uh, aptly confused fielder would, to try to make sure that he's got the triple play. So some people say the throw to second was a necessary part of the play. Under the scoring rules, that runner may have been out before that. And it's actually great. You've got you know, John Thorne, who's the official historian of Major League Baseball. Uh, he has said it is. And then it got refuted about a year later in Sabres Baseball Research Journal. A guy named Richard Hershberger did a really nice piece in which he went back and got, uh, you know, first-hand accounts and says, no, it really wasn't. So is it, isn't it? It's a good question. Um, but It happened in 1878. I say give it to him. <laughs> give it to him. I'm uh, chiming in. I'm going to be uh, the tiebreaker. I'm saying 16, Joe. Give it to him. Uh, it's good enough for me. It's closer than I ever. He was probably a Civil War veteran, for God's sake. And let's let's <laughs> let's throw him a bone here. Uh, so uh, only fifteen or sixteen. I'm going to say sixteen in the in the history of baseball. And that I mean that makes it an exceptionally rare feat, rarer than the perfect game, right? Because your your previous book uh, and the, Joe, I'm blanking here, but it was the perfect game, the heartbreaking pursuit of pitching's holy grail, I believe. Yeah, almost perfect. Yeah. Okay, almost perfect. Thank you. Uh, is my my description oddly enough almost perfect, but not quite. <laughs> Uh, how many perfect games have there been in, in history, Joe? It's in the 20s. I recall that offhand. Uh, the, the triple play thing was perfect because I had 16 almost perfect games that I wrote about, but the number of completed perfect games in the low 20s and maybe 24. Okay. And, and of course, your book is I'm, I'm calling it the perfect game, but your book obviously was about pitchers who came within one out of achieving that immortality uh, and you told their story because everybody knows the story of the perfect games but uh, really until your book in many cases the the stories had not been chronicled of the pitchers who missed it by a whisker um, yeah. now unlike a perfect game or a near perfect game uh, unassisted triple plays are for the most part just blind luck are they not? No absolutely it's a circumstantial thing you've got to have no outfit two runners on and probably the runners off on the pitch and you've got to be a middle infielder who catches a line drive and gets a little lucky. And the most recent one, I believe, was maybe about nine years ago. Was it Eric Bruntlett of the Philadelphia Phillies, I want to say? It was Eric Bruntlett who was hitting 128 for the season and uh, that was pretty much the end of his career. He turned an unassisted triple play to end the game, and then uh, he he barely played a handful more games and <laughs> retired. Where can you go after that? Listen, so. if you're gonna you know just ride off into the sunset like Alan Ladd at the end of Shane, you know, just <laughs> gone. I'm gone. Drop the microphone. All right. Well, let's talk about strikeouts. And my goodness, we've already talked about strikeouts in the context of the immaculate inning. And did you say there were eight last year? out of the 89 in history and you know you got to believe that the direction that the game is trending that uh we're going to see more uh, immaculate innings we're certainly you would think at some point going to see someone strike out more than 20 batters in a nine inning game probably sooner rather than later one would think um I believe that six times in history someone has struck out 20 or more batters in a game. And and before we get into that, 
a lot of people, you ask them, well, who struck out the most batters in a single game? And you're going to hear Kerry Wood's name. You're going to hear Roger Clemens' name, Randy Johnson. But the correct answer is actually a guy named Tom Chaney from the Washington Senators who struck out 21 batters in a game. But I believe, I want to say, Joe, it took him 16 innings to do it. It did. It took him 16 innings and 228 pitches. Oh, hang on, Joe. I think I just blew out my my UCL just from you saying that. Let me let, <laughs> let me check my. I'm going in for Tommy John next week now. Uh, thanks to just hearing that, 228 pitches in one game. Yeah, and that's it. I mean, that was that was late 1962, and he was off to a great start the next spring. He'd won eight games by early July, and then he threw a pitch, and his uh, his elbow went, and he won one more game as a major league pitcher. Wow! But twenty one strikeouts in a sixteen inning game, and he's kind of lost to history a little bit of that, you know, a little bit, I think. Uh, obviously, it's a, it's a greater achievement to strike out twenty batters in nine innings, although in some respects, <laughs> pitching sixteen innings and throwing two hundred and twenty eight pitches may trump may trump 20 strikeouts for that matter. But um, yeah. you, you, where do you see the history of this going? I think Max Scherzer was the last guy to do it. Uh, are we are we going to see a guy throw up 21 Ks in nine innings, you think, sometime in the – if I said within the next five years, where would you place the odds that we're going to see somebody break the 20 threshold in a, in a nine-inning game? You know, honestly, I was surprised to see Scherzer do it just because of – pitch count issue. I think to strike out 21 batters, you're going to have to throw 140, 150 pitches. And I think more likely than that we see somebody hit 20 or 21 is that we're going to see some games where there's going to be a Steven Strasburg kind of guy who will get 15 and 7 innings and then come out of the game. And we're going to grumble and say we're never going to know if they would get 20 or 21. Uh, you know, the Kerry Wood situation is always going to be held up now as an example of why you don't do that to a young pitcher, uh, even if if they've got the, the kind of arm to make it happen. So so maybe Scherzer was, you know, the last of the unicorns on this, but uh, I, I'd love to be wrong. What we're probably going to see at some point is 24 or 25 strikeouts in a game, but it's going to be combined on by like four guys. <laughs> right. Uh, well, one one more word about strikeouts here. I don't want to beat strikeouts into the ground, but the idea of uh, four strikeout innings, which um, is, you know, immediately some people hear that and they say, what are you talking about? How can there be four strikeouts in, in one inning? But it's happened 87 times in baseball history and and of course I understand how a four strikeout inning can take place and I'll I'll have you uh I'll have you uh, elaborate on that in a moment but I was actually surprised that that had happened 87 times I, I would have guessed that that it was less uh tell us a little bit about the history of the four strikeout inning and we we've still never had a five strikeout inning so it, you know maybe at some point uh, somebody'll do that but uh yeah, what what's yeah. the story what's the story of the pitchers who have uh posted four Ks in one inning the story lies in rule 5.05A2 which if you don't have a uh, copy of the rule book handy says that if the third strike is not caught and first base is either unoccupied or is occupied with two out, then the batter can run. So you strike a guy out on a pitch in the dirt that eludes the catcher, uh, and given those circumstances, the batter is going to take off for first base. We've all seen it happen. Uh, you know, at that time or two a season, you'll you'll see one. Uh, but it obviously takes a guy with some pretty wild stuff to manage to strike out three other people in the inning to have the four-strikeout inning. There was one time, and it's actually the first four-strikeout inning, was the one that could have been a five-strikeout inning because the pitcher uh, who had that inning, Bobby Matthews, two of the strikeouts were wild-pitch strikeouts. He got one out in a conventional way. Somebody hit the ball, so he had a chance at a five-strikeout inning, which hasn't ever happened, uh, but you know, he, he could have done it that time. Uh, and it's one of those plays that it's such an odd fluke of happenstance. 
you know, a knuckleball pitcher would be a pretty good bet as a guy to, to put up four in an inning or maybe someday five. All right, Joe. We're gonna we're gonna move away from strikeouts and we're we're gonna talk about home runs. Uh, four home run games. You know, two home run games are commonplace. There, you, you see them almost every day of the major league season. Somebody does it, if not multiple guys. Three home run games are exceptional, but far from unheard of. But four home runs in a game is, you know, have yourself a day. Um, 18 times in baseball history this has happened. Rarer than the perfect game. Tell me the story. Who are the guys who have hit four homers in a game that I would that I wouldn't be surprised to learn about? And who are the guys who have hit four home runs in a game that might raise some eyebrows? Well, and I'm glad you asked that because within the context of each feat, I wanted people to be able to access that information. So I've tried to include every time uh, in a little box at the beginning of the chapter. For instance, on four home runs, uh, the names you would have heard of, the names you would expect would be Willie Mays or Mike Schmidt or Lou Gehrig. Uh, those are the kind of guys you think about and you go, yeah, I can see four homers in a game. The the names that might be surprises, uh, Scooter Jeanette, of course, did this in uh, in 2017, although the way Scooter's going, he may not be a surprise much longer. Uh, but uh, a guy named Pat Seary, who hit 86 homers in his career, had four in a game. And uh, switch hitting Mark Whitten in my days of young fandom, I remember had a four homer game. I remember the Mark Whitten game. He was on my fantasy team, and I had him on the bench. So <laughs> that's a that was a little bit of a dagger, Joe. That's been twenty five years that I'm not saying I remember that, but I had that I had that memory real quick for you. Well, uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, the thing with Witten, it was a doubleheader, and you might have uh, thought in the first game you were onto something because he took an over and uh, booted a ball out in right field and kind of uh, was instrumental in losing the game. But then he comes back in the nightcap, and, and yeah, as you said, have yourself a game, indeed. My memory of that is that his batting line for that game, I think I'm right because it's scarred into my memory from the trauma uh, of not having him in the lineup, was 4-4-4-12. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, not, that's, that's right. not bad, right? And, and speaking of which, an, another of the feats that you chronicle in the book is the 10-RBI game. So Mark Whitten doubled up and uh, put himself into a little bit of baseball immortality uh, in more than one way that day. Uh, the 10-RBI game is actually a slightly rarer feat than the four-home run game, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and, and there were some guys who did double up. Scooter Jeanette uh, got 10 RBIs with his four-homer game, too. Uh, 15 guys with 10 uh, RBIs in one game. And, uh, again, you, you've got some guys you think of, A-Rod, Reggie Jackson, and some guys who, frankly, I'd never heard of until I wrote this, like the immortal Norm Zalkin or <laughs> Phil Weintraub. <laughs> the 10 RBI game I'm surprised I would have thought some of these intuitively I feel like they would be higher or lower and the 10 RBI game I would have thought that that had happened more than 15 times but what do I know um, here's one for you that I thought was interesting uh, the, the, six, the six walk game as a hitter only five times in the history of baseball has a batter drawn six walks in a game and I would think your average baseball fan or, or, or maybe your average serious baseball fan, if, if we were playing Family Feud and that was the question, name a baseball player who's drawn six walks in a game, I would think the most obvious answer that anyone could give would be Barry Bonds. And yet, yeah, exactly. and yet he's, he's not one of them. Um, nope. Was there any common theme or thread that you could find between the six walk games, or is it just one of those aberrations that it's hard to hard to project or predict? The the biggest pattern was a long game. Obviously, if you play a sixteen and eighteen inning game, uh, you've got a lot more chances to to get up to bed and to get walked. Uh, but the, the one that I thought of was the only one that I've, I, re, I remember watching was, was Bryce Harper in 2016 where the Cubs had basically just decided he wasn't going to beat them. And then they walked him six times. And granted, that game 
I think went 13 innings. So, so there were a lot of play appearances. But as I read through the other accounts, nobody else's story read like that. The other guys, and, and I mean, there were some big names, Jimmy Fox, Jeff Bagwell, uh, but, you know, Walt Wilmot, Andre Thornton, they, they weren't necessarily guys who people were pitching around. It was just, you play a 16-inning game, and, you know, maybe you've got a rookie hitting behind you in the lineup, and you take a few pitches, and the next thing you know, you're in uh, the immaculate inning, so... Well, speaking of six, uh, six of something <laughs> in a game, there's a segue for you, Joe. Uh, what, what about six hits in a game? Uh, considerably more common than six walks. Yeah, yeah. So maybe a walk really is as good as a hit. Um, six hits in a game was common enough that when I went to count it, I just restricted the count to nine inning games and came up with 114 of those. Um, so, you know, if you start including extra inning games, it gets even crazier. But, uh, you know, again, a lot of the, the names who you would think of as guys who would have six hits in a game weren't necessarily guys who did. The only guys with 3,000 hits who got six hits in a nine-inning game were Ty Cobb, Cal Ripken, and Paul Lehner. So, you know, a couple of the likely guys. But at the same time, you've got a pitcher, a guy named Guy Hecker, and my favorite of the list has to be a guy named Zaza Harvey, who got 86 hits in his career, but he got six hits in one game in 1902. Wow! Now that and a, and you said a pitcher actually did this. Yeah. What year was that, Joe? Uh, guy Hecker. I am not sure if the details of Guy Hecker's feet have been wiped from my mind, but. Uh, <laughs> He obviously was a pretty good hitter, so I'll say, I it, yeah, don't 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 pinch it for for that pitcher, um, yeah. and yet and yet there's one man who stands alone with seven hits in a nine inning game. Yeah, yeah, the uh, the great Rennie Stennett. I believe for the Pirates at Wrigley Field, and was it seventy five? Mm-hmm. It was indeed, and. Uh, you know, if you want to go out and, and chase some baseball history, it probably helps to be part of a game where it's 22 to nothing. <laughs> well, 22 to nothing is one of the most Cubs things in the in the history of Cubdom uh, at Wrigley. Yeah. So it was it was right there for all the faithful, probably all 2,000 of them. I'll have to I'll have to go and look at the attendance. Probably not a people, uh, not a lot of people feasting their eyeballs uh, on that one. But uh, but Rennie Stennett is the only man to have seven base hits in a nine-inning game going seven for seven that day. And he did it on a sore ankle. He didn't necessarily know that he would play that day. And as the Pirates jumped ahead early in the game, he had two hits in the first inning. I mean, it was that kind of day for the Cubs. Um, you know, he, he went to Danny Murtaugh and said, you know, uh, my ankles bother me. Can I come out? And Murtaugh says, you know, I'm not taking you out until you make it out. And finally, in the eighth inning, he gets a triple uh, to get his seventh hit of the day. And at that point, Murtaugh you know, sent out a, a pinch runner for him and said, okay, good enough. I'll, I'll take you out now. But uh, <laughs> Murtaugh, you know, told him after the game that he'd always heard you know, Wilbert Robinson, the old Brooklyn Dodger manager, is one of the guys with six in a game, and he said that he'd always heard that Robinson was very protective of his record of six, so that if a guy got five hits, he'd take the guy out of the game uh, <laughs> to protect his numbers. So he said, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do you a favor, Stennett. I'm, I'm trying to get you some ABs here and let you make some history. <laughs> All right, Joe. Now, here's one of my favorites from the book. Uh, the uh, what what you refer to as the super slam, and while uh, my listeners may not know what a super slam is by by that term, at least everybody, as you note in the book, uh, who whoever picked up a wiffle ball bat knows what a super slam is. It's happened twenty eight times in in big league history. Joe, tell tell me and our listeners about the maybe perhaps the most glorious feet in some respects that uh, that you could accomplish in a game of baseball it is it is the most glorious and if you've ever been a little kid in the backyard and 
you know, thrown a, a wiffle ball or a tennis ball up in the air and, and pretended it was undoubtedly Game 7 of the World Series, which hasn't happened in Game 7 of the World Series. But the scenario is you're down three runs, and the bases are loaded, and it's the bottom of the ninth. And, of course, in our dreams, we all hit the big hit, which we've nicknamed the Super Slam. In reality, it's only happened 28 times in the history of Major League Baseball. Uh, but what a, what a great thing to be able to do. And as you would imagine, if you're lucky enough to be one of those 28 guys, uh, it's a story that sticks in your mind long after the game. Now, do, do there have to be two outs? Or do there just have to be bases loaded down three bottom of the ninth? It's actually, yeah, yeah, bases loaded down three bottom of the ninth. Because there were two outs every time for me, you know. Because like I'm, you know, I I was going for maximum glory in the backyard. So there were always two outs. Sometimes there were two strikes, or you know, full count. What whatever in my ten year old mind was going to in- increase the glory when I when I connected. Um, is there any way? Do you know how many times it happened with two outs? Because to me, that's that's kind of the super super slam. Yeah, I, I don't. Of the ones that I wrote about, uh, I know at least one definitely didn't. Roberto Clemente, I wrote about his super slam, one, because it was Clemente, but two, because he hit an inside-the-park super slam. Wow. This was with no out, and he ran through a stop sign at third base. You know, <laughs> the, the, a triple would tie the game, and Clemente says, the heck with that, I'm going for the whole thing, and ran right through the stop sign and scored for the only uh, inside-the-park Super Slam that I have uh, documented. So, yeah, my guess would be less than a dozen of these were uh, because I'm I'm going back and and taking a look at the notes here. And Brooks Conrad, he hit his with one out. Uh, So, yeah, that that needs to be the ultimate Super Slam. But then, yeah, we'll have to have a two-strike one as well. So, I I don't know. That's right. That's I'm going to call that the super, super, super slam. Two outs, two strikes. Uh, and if you do it in, and if you do it in the seventh game of the World Series to win the World Series, I think that is just like the world ends. Right? We all just descend into heaven, and we're done here yeah, on this planet. That's somewhere in Revelation. I'm not sure exactly <laughs> where, but I remember. All right, Joe, here's one that uh, everybody knows about and, and perhaps one of the most ballyhooed uh, feats, uh, I, I would say, of the last 30 years in baseball anyway, which is the 40-40 season. Um, only has happened four times ever, 40-40, and yet you hear people talk about it a, a heck of a lot. Yeah, one of the fun things with 40-40 is it never happened until 1988 with Conseco. Uh, so you have this element of, you know, Mickey Mantle famously at the time said, well, hell, if I'd known this was a big thing, I, I would have done it a couple of times uh, when I was young. And I have uh, no doubt, I have no doubt whatsoever that he that he could have had he made it nobody a priority. And that was right. the problem. The homers were there, but uh, yeah, nobody ran. Uh, there actually was a guy in 1922, Ken Williams of the St. Louis Browns, who just uh, missed a 40-40 season. He had a 39-37 season, uh, but you know, no, no ink for that. Unlike Canseco, Ken Williams didn't seem to have the, the glamour that would uh, make 40-40, you know, one of those landmark accomplishments. Uh, but in retrospect, probably uh, a landmark most for being associated with PED guys, surprise, surprise. <laughs> right. It's a big, big thing for Conseco. You know, I got Conseco's autograph at a card show. Uh, I've, well, I've, you know, I've admitted that publicly now, but I, I got Jose Conseco's <laughs> autograph at a card show a few years ago, and uh, I wanted to get a 1988 American League MVP inscription on it. And uh-huh. Conseco signed the ball and you know handed it back to me and I look at it and he put 40-40 on there as well I didn't even ask for it you know he probably puts that on his checks I I, I guess I, I guarantee it yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah it's a heck of an accomplishment I know that uh, some people are talking about Mike Trout who uh, presumably can do anything on a baseball diamond uh, probably the best bet among our among our current guys you think to uh, be the fifth man to do it yeah, I, I had singled Trout out in 
2017 is a likely guy, and with the start he's off to in 2018, um, no reason to change that that aspect. But, you know, that's that's one of the things that really came through in the in the book is the way that you know things will happen in bunches, and then they won't happen for a while. And you know, right now with the stolen base being very much devalued. Uh, from a from an outsider's perspective, you'd say hey, it may not have a forty forty, or may not have one for a long time. But if Trout decides he wants it, uh, I don't think anybody's going to tell him otherwise. Well, th- that's a pretty good segue you just gave me into talking about stolen bases, and I particularly want to talk about one hundred stolen base seasons. Now, I was born in nineteen seventy one, and so for me. I, you know, growing up and really coming of age, I suppose, in some respects as a baseball fan in, in the, the early 1980s, at that time, the 100 stolen base season, while you understood on some level that it's a hell of a thing, uh, it, it was happening a little bit. You know, Ricky Henderson uh, famously stole 130 bases in 1982. Vince Coleman, I want to say Vince Coleman did it three years in a row. I might be wrong. His first three years. Yeah. Okay, so it, it was a thing, you know. It was it was incredible, but it was possible, and I would have never have guessed, you know, in the 1980s, that Vince Coleman in 1987 is the last guy to have done it, and and I don't even think anybody's even sniffed it really in a very very long time. You no, know, they haven't. The, the top mark in the 21st century. It's Jose Reyes with 78 steals in 2007, so not even not even a, a good uh, attempt at it. But, yeah, this was one of those records where, or one of these feats where, uh, in the dead ball era, it, it happens pretty commonly. Uh, I told the, the, the first guy, a guy named Hugh Nickel, who was five foot four, uh, <laughs> and basically couldn't hit, had no power, but if he got on base, he was going. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of people like you, Nickel, in baseball back then. And, and then the home run comes along and the stolen base, you know, goes out of vogue. And it doesn't really come back until Lou Brock. I mean, Marty Wills certainly as well. Uh, but Wills and Lou Brock kind of bring it back. And then I, I'm with you. To me, you know, I, I think of Ricky Henderson. I think of Vince Coleman. And honestly, I was surprised that Coleman in 87 was the last guy because, you know, I'm, I'm a few years younger than you, and for me, you know, I think of baseball in the, the late 80s, the early 90s, and it seemed like every team had a guy who either stole 50 bases or you looked at him and you thought, well, he's, he's probably going to steal 50 bases. Uh, so it it surprised me even that it had been that long for 100 steals. But these days, I, I don't know, Billy Hamilton was a guy who I latched onto and said he could have a chance, but... I don't think Billy Hamilton hits enough to, to even get on base necessarily a hundred times a year. <laughs> right. uh, but, and if he does, I mean, there's such a, a move against the stolen base now. Um, we may get to the point where you don't see 50 steal seasons instead of you, you don't see hundreds. Well, one of the things that I think your book highlights very well is the stylistic and strategic shifts in, in baseball through the years. And, and you actually go out of your way to note with some of these feats that X amount of them happened pre-1900 or X amount of them happened pre-1883 or, or whatever the case might be because uh, things come in and out of vogue, the game changes, and uh, you know one feat that particularly that I think of that people used to talk about when is someone going to do this again and now I think that uh, if you're any kind of a realist you realize that this isn't going to happen again at least any time in the foreseeable future which is someone winning 30 games in a season because I believe you note in the book that Denny McLean, uh, who in 1968 went 31 and 6 for the Detroit Tigers is the only guy who's won 30 games in a season since 1934, I believe. Um, yeah. You said it was. Now, people used to talk about that. I remember growing up, I remember in 1990 when Bob Welch went 27-6 and six for, the, for the A's. There was some talk during that season that Bob Welch was on pace for it and possibly could Bob Welch get the 30 wins, but... 
in this era that we that we live in now, it's if you make thirty starts, uh, you know that's that's pretty good. Much less one in thirty games. Yeah, with with uh, the strict you know five man rotation, if you're going to start thirty three times a year, who who even gets a decision in ninety percent of their starts? Much less wins ninety percent of their starts. Uh, and, and I went back and looked at that Welch season because I remembered it well. And I wanted to make the case, see, you know, you, you really could do this. Honestly, Welch didn't even come that close. I mean, he put up the great numbers, but I went and specifically looked at the starts where he didn't get wins, thinking, okay, let's argue that a couple of these should have, could have, would have been wins. Well, first he had a great bullpen on that 1990 Oakland team. You know, Eckersley with a sub-1 ERA closing for him, but, you know, they had great setup guys. That bullpen didn't blow any games for him, basically. And, you know, yeah, he, he lost a handful of games, but for the most part, when he lost a game that year, he, he just lost a game. Uh, it, it's almost unfathomable. Maybe this whole uh, Sergio Romo opening pitcher thing will uh, will somehow create uh, some kind of havoc in the scoring rules, and then we'll have some flukish game winner like that. I don't know. Well, well speaking of records that perhaps we can – Retire. You never want to say never because forever is a long time and baseball does ebb and flow. But another record that for many, many years when I was growing up, people would talk about this one. Occasionally somebody would get in close enough sniffing distance that it would become a thing for a while and people would track it and then inevitably the guy would fall off. And that is... Uh, the the search for baseball's next 400 hitter. Um, famously, Ted Williams hit 406 in 1941. Nobody's done it since. I believe the the high water mark in in my lifetime. George Brett hit 390 in 1980 for the Royals, and I think Tony Gwynn hit 394 during the strike shortened season, and that's uh, as close as anyone has gotten. Um, Joe has has the game of baseball with with these bullpens and this parade of hard throwing effective relief pitchers and so forth ha, ha, and shifts and whatever else have we gotten to the point where it, it, we're just never going to see another four hundred hitter? I'm going to be an optimist here and I'm going to say that now we will see one. And, and part of the reason I think, if if this is a reason at all. Uh, I read a story the other day where they were talking about how baseball lacks the marquee athlete anymore. And it resonated with me. You, you say, who are the athletes now who are household names? Uh, okay, you know, Messi, uh, LeBron James, and Tom Brady probably. They're not baseball players. You, you really struggle. I mean, Mike Trout's probably the best baseball player on the planet, but if people know who Mike Trout is, if you want baseball, you know, but he yeah, could walk. He could walk down the street, I think, in yeah. a lot of places, and would not be recognized probably by yeah. many people. I, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. So, and I think for baseball, that ties to the lack of some of the big, big accomplishments. Uh, and I think a 400 season would be one that would change that. So, I think in my lifetime, in your lifetime, we're going to have another guy hit 400. How is he going to do it? Well, for one thing. Given the proliferation of the shift, he's going to have to have incredible bat control. Two, he's probably going to have to be really fast uh, because, you know, a, a leg hit here and there. George Brett's 390 season, he was five hits away from 400. George Brett wasn't very fast. If he'd gotten one more infield hit a month, he'd have hit 400. Uh, and, you know, just logically, he's probably either going to be left-handed or a switch hitter because that extra step or two out of the batter's box down to first base will make a difference on a ball or two a month. Uh, but I think it's going to happen, and I think whoever it is who does it, that will be the Messi, the LeBron James, the Tom Brady of baseball, who will bring baseball back into the national consciousness the way that Babe Ruth did in his generation, and you know, the way that a Sandy Koufax or a Hank Aaron did or a Jackie Robinson did in their generation. Well, so, so that's my guess. I, I think it would be it'd be a heck of a lot like the 1998 home run chase, right? Only ho- yeah. hopefully, you know, it's not tarnished in retrospect. Because I think that uh, with the 1998 McGuire-Sosa uh, battle for uh, breaking Maris's record, 
we're so jaded looking back on it now and it's such a drag that things turned out the way that they did with regard to that that sometimes it's easy to forget how magical that felt at the time that it was happening and how much it captivated the public's imagination and i i I gotta say that I, i think you're right about that if somebody is really flirting with 400 in the late september uh that's gonna have an incredible buzz around it yeah, it will, and and I couldn't agree more strongly with with what you say. I mean, uh, particularly for Sosa. I mean, people remember McGuire for better or for worse, but the season that Sammy Sosa had in 1998, it's like it never existed. And you know, uh, for better or worse, I, I'm a Cubs guy, so I remember. Oh my gosh, it just every day was another chance to see something you wouldn't see before. And that's where baseball has something that the other games don't. Uh, I mean, football, when Tom Brady's out there doing surgery on somebody's secondary, you see it once a week. But baseball, to see a guy go to the ballpark every day, and that's, you know, that's DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak. That's Williams with his 400 run. To see consistent excellence day in and day out in baseball, it's just, it takes it to another level. Well, a couple of things here. I, I want to talk about the, the hitting streak uh, of DiMaggio, and you do have a chapter in the book about 40-plus game hitting streaks. But I wanted to ask you about just the, the, and I'm far from the first person to make this observation, but what is it about baseball in numbers that sets it apart? Because it's hard to imagine someone writing kind of the equivalent book of what you've written about the NFL or about the NBA mm-hmm. the, the the numbers and the lore it's just not the same thing what is it about baseball that sets it apart from these other sports in terms of the way that we count and measure and, and recognize achievements oh baseball is a counting game because of you know, the, the challenge of doing it every day and doing it over a longer season than any other sport. Um, and, you know, the, the numbers lend themselves to, to baseball. We, we count everything in baseball. And, you know, in some level, the counting almost defines the players more than the players define the counting. Uh, I remember I've read Bill James talk about this on occasion. You. You, you say, okay, a guy with 25 home run power. Well, that conjures up an idea in your mind. You say a guy who's a 320 hitter versus a guy who's a 280 hitter. Both of those guys are really good hitters, but you think of somebody very different who hits 320 than you do of somebody who hits 280. Um, and at some level, the players kind of become the numbers. They kind of inhabit the numbers. Ted Williams is kind of 400 now because – He's the last guy to do it in 70-some years. It it kind of becomes him. And you think of a 400 hitter, and you think of a guy with the excellence of a Ted Williams. Uh, And and there's something just mystical about the people and the numbers blurring together to the point, I mean, 60 is Babe Ruth. The number, the the record's been broken, but 60 is still Babe Ruth. And where, where else do you see that? You don't see it in any other sport. I can't think of anywhere in society where you see that. Well, as you say, some of these guys, they, they become synonymous with, with the number. Joe DiMaggio is 56, and he's always going to be 56. And hitting streaks, uh, you know, for me as a kid, in 1978, which probably is the year that I really fell in love with baseball, that was the year that I discovered baseball. That's the first World Series that that I remember watching. I followed the Yankees-Red Sox race all season long. I mean, that's the year that I got hooked and started this 40-year journey that I've been on as a a passionate baseball fan. And, of course, that was the summer that that Pete Rose had his 44-game hitting streak. And as I look to my right here, I have... Um, on the wall, a uh, Sports Illustrated from 1978. I had a subscription, thanks, thanks, Mom, when I was six years old to Sports Illustrated. And somehow through the years, the uh, Pete Rose edition, it says Pete Streak. It's from August 7th, 1978. I remember the day that it came. I remember taking it out of the mailbox. And somehow it survived in reasonable shape through the years. 
And about five years ago, I got Pete to sign it. And I've got it framed, and it's on my wall. And it's a reminder to me every time that I turn to my right from my desk and look at it that Pete Rose had that 44-game hitting streak in 78. And I remember what a big deal that was to people. And what an accomplishment it is, because nobody has gotten to that level again in the 40 years that have happened since then. And while 44 games is an amazing accomplishment, he didn't even come close to Joe D's record. Um, uh, in the in the uh, pantheon of records for a single season that aren't going to be broken, uh, where do we where do we put this hitting streak? And I'll I'll ask you to be a prognosticator again for me. Um, in my lifetime, if I live another 40 years, let's hope, uh, any chance that I'm going to see somebody get close to DiMaggio. And on that note, I'm going to say no. I think we've got a better chance of seeing a 400 hitter than a 56-game hitting streak. Just because a 400 hitter can hit 400 in many different ways, you can be streaky. You can have days where you go 0 for 4 and days where you go 4 for 4, and they balance out, and you hit 500 for the the series, you know. Uh, But 56 games in a row... And the the amazing thing is that even DiMaggio felt the media pressure in 1941 doing that. What would DiMaggio have felt in the, the days of ESPN? Uh-huh. I mean, we remember McGuire and how crazy that was. And the thing with home runs is, you, again, you can have a game without a homer. You can have a series without a homer. You can hit two the next day and you're back on pace or whatever. But a hitting streak, uh, that is the one. I, I almost feel like you would need a McGuire and Sosa kind of thing where you would need two guys to do it to maybe take the heat off of each other and kind of, you know, you get into almost like NASCAR strategy here. You're going to use another guy to kind of set the pace, and then, you know, he has an offer, and maybe you can kind of sneak around and, and go from there. Uh, but it's hard to fathom in, in the modern culture. Well, the thing that's always blown my mind is DiMaggio had a longer hitting streak in the Pacific Coast League. That... Yeah, exactly. This, this wasn't, uh, you know, really any any crazy thing for him. And, and, of course, the day after he goes over and ends it at 56, he gets hits in the next 16 games. So he could have <laughs> very easily had a 73-game hitting streak if Ken Keltner hadn't played some really good third base one night in Cleveland. Yeah, there's no way. That's that's just mind blowing. Uh, and and I think streaks have a different kind of pressure, right? I, I, I as, as you've noted, some of these things balance out. I hit I hit three home runs today. I don't hit any for a couple of days. I hit two the next day, one the next day, and my pace is unbelievable. But I'm allowed to have I'm allowed to have a few days where uh, where I don't perform. Uh, with the hitting streak, you got to do it every day. It's uh, it's like it's almost like somebody who has a hot streak going at the craps table or, or whatever. Streak, yeah. Streaks are just, by their nature, difficult to sustain. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I wanted to tell a lot of those stories. Talked about scoreless innings in the book. Okay, let's, uh, let's talk you know, about uh, scoreless innings, Joe. I'm sorry I, I, to jump in here. But I, I, this is another one that... I think that this is one that we're, we're going to see more of because in the history of baseball, there are four pitchers who have hurled 50-plus scoreless innings consecutively. And it's uh, what Dr- Dr- Walter Johnson, Drysdale, Hershiser, and I'm blanking. Colby Jack Coombs. Oh, well, all right. Well, there, there you go. All right. Now, here's my theory on 50-plus scoreless innings in a row. I'm surprised that it's only four because I would think at some point the, a relief pitcher is going to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Craig I mean, Kimbrell or somebody. Or, right. Or uh, Eckersley. Yeah. yeah. I'm surprised. Is that – do you think that's just – is that statistical – Noise that there hasn't been a relief pitcher yet is it is it deceptively difficult for a relief pitcher to do it because even though relief pitchers usually have easier uh, a time obviously of of having one scoreless inning than a than stringing together a bunch of shutouts or seven or eight inning stints which is what a starting pitcher is going to have to do is it I mean to throw fifty scoreless in a row if you're if you're Craig Kimbrell or or, or somebody like that that's that's probably being effective at least 45 straight times. 
Yeah, I mean, that would essentially be a scoreless season probably for most of those guys. Uh, but but I'm with you. I think that is, is one of the oddities of the, the inning streak and the guys who have done it recently. Again, it's starters. Zach Grinke, Clayton Kershaw both uh, got above 40 innings here in the last few years. Uh, but I'm with you. Kenley Jansen would be a better bet to to my mind. Uh, you know, with the way they use him, bringing him in clean at the beginning of innings. Uh, it's not hard for me to fathom uh, a culture in which it's a reliever who ultimately breaks Hershiser's record. Well, Joe, this has been a great conversation, and I, I want to I want to wrap up on a, a, a note that I guess contains some controversy because. Batting titles are perhaps perhaps not as coveted as they used to be, and 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 I suppose there are good reasons for that. Our our sabermetric understanding is better now, and we we understand that batting average is far from the the most telling statistic about your performance. But if you lead the league in batting, it should go without saying that you've had a pretty good year. Okay, you may not be the best hitter in the league. You might not be one of the 10 best hitters in the league in terms of overall effectiveness, but you've helped your team if you win a batting title. And I, and I think that because of the lore of the game, uh, winning a batting title is still a pretty prestigious thing. And uh, through the years, there have at times in horse races, so to speak, where guys are battling down to the wire, there have been some uh, chicanery that has that has gone on, Joe. So uh, you have a chapter in the book about it. Tell me a little bit about some of the batting title duels that have either ended in controversy or at least hurt feelings. Oh, yeah. It's one of the fascinating instances of the unwritten rules of baseball rearing their heads. I mean, the most common uh, form that this takes, the, the guy who, you know, he's leading the league is hitting 340, and the guy in second is hitting 335, and the guy who's hitting 340 just happens to take the last series of the year off. <laughs> right. uh, now, maybe he would have taken the series off anyway, but maybe he's protecting that batting crowd. And that's one, you know, that, that comes up almost all the time. That, that's really... Uh, surprisingly common because people still get mad about it but you know that is your more garden variety hygiene but that said baseball has even deeper stories in that I mean, the most famous one is the uh, Ty Cobb Napoleon Lashway uh, 1910 batting title when the St. Louis Browns basically hated Cobb so much that they threw the batting race to Lashway or tried to by playing their third baseman somewhere in left field, uh, which Lashway promptly noted and butted eight times for a hit in a doubleheader, uh, as Cobb sat out and protected his batting yeah. average. And, and, ha- uh, and haven't things changed? Because if that happened today, Joey Gallo would just ground out to right field. <laughs> my God, I don't care if there's nobody over there. I'm, I'm take. I'm, I'm going to keep my approach. <laughs> That's it. It would. It would be a reverse shift. Now you'd. Uh, as a right-handed batter, they'd play everybody, you know, to the right of the second baseman. And right. get it. So I don't know. That's the only but, way you can uh, help him, yes. Yeah, yeah. You you got that whole thing, which ended up getting a couple of guys kicked out of baseball. And it was a big deal because the, the Chalmers company awarded the winner of the batting title a car. And that particular race was so controversial, they just said to hell with it, and they gave both guys a car. Uh, and then promptly stopped doing that anymore because they were probably tired of giving away extra cars. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you, you, there was one in the 50s with Al Rosen uh, where the, uh, the the opposition was Mickey Vernon, and he had guys who protected him from coming to bat and possibly losing the batting title. Guys would get hits and then just stand there and get picked off so that Vernon didn't have to come to bat again. That one, you know, kind of smelled funny. Uh, but it's it's a fairly modern phenomenon, and, and a story that I didn't know until I did this book was in 1976 in the AL. You had teammates who were George Brett and Hal McRae, and it literally came down to their last at-bats of the season. Uh, they come up, and Brett hits, and then McRae, and if both guys get a hit, McRae wins the title, and if both guys make outs, McRae wins the title. The only way Brett can win is if Brett gets a hit and McRae makes an out. 
And Brett's up first, and he lost what's apparently a routine fly ball to left field that the Twins left fielder, uh, a guy named Steve Bry, just completely misses, misplays it into an inside-the-park home run, uh, which apparently looked a little odd. And then up comes McCray, and he makes it out. And McCray didn't take kindly to this. Uh, McCray thought it was a race thing, uh, and there are reasons to wonder about that. Uh, other people, I, I found a writer in the New York Times who blamed it not on McCray's color, which, of course, McCray was black and Brett white, uh, but on McCray's, quote, aggressive style of play, which was odd to me because I don't remember George Brett being a shrinking violet. I mean, I think of George <laughs> Brett, I think of the Pine Tar game. and, and yeah, He was, was, a, he was a red ass, there's students. no doubt about that. I yeah, fair yeah to say. exactly. So that that seems a little odd in retrospect, but you know, one of those odd stories that somehow, despite the fact that it's more or less in my times, I, I had totally missed that. I have a vague memory of that, but uh, you, you go into much further detail in the book than I was aware of, and and I, I didn't realize that the and it wasn't just McCray. I, I mean, there were other people that looked at Steve Bry and felt that something was shady about that, and. Of course, this is something that's uh, in the legend of the game, like so many things are, because there's no video footage of it that exists for for us to pull it up on YouTube and say, okay, well, did Steve Bry just lose that ball, or did he have an agenda, right? We, we'll, we'll never know. All we have are the eyewitness accounts. Yeah, exactly, which means it's always arguable, and, and thus, you know, people like me get to pump up and write about it every once in a while. <laughs> well, that's one of the great things about baseball is so much of it is arguable and the, and the, and the history is, is so rich. And I, I think there are few uh, authors out there today who are capturing the essence and the, the history of baseball any better than this man, Joe Cox. Uh, Joe, so proud to have you on the podcast as a, as a friend of yours since college. So proud for your success. How, it, how many books does this make now? I can never keep up because you're you're prolific. Well, this is seven that I've had some hand in. I uh, helped Saber with a book on no hitters, and I'm, I'm working with him now. I'm actually uh, working on a brief biography of Raphael Belliard for a Saber book. Funny enough, that's tremendous. Uh, but I've got my own book coming too in uh, February of 19. I can't say a lot about it, but I'm tremendously excited about it, and uh, I hope it'll be the best thing I've written yet. I feel like it should be if I can do justice to my subject. Well, you you told me off the record what it's about, and I can tell you that I, I can't wait to read it, and I, I think that a heck of a lot of people are going to enjoy that one. And, and the subject matter that, that you have in your hands, uh, I, I know is going to make for another terrific book. Uh, this one is called The Immaculate Inning, and I'm going to go ahead and read the entire title, Joe, just because I like it. It's The Immaculate Inning, Unassisted Triple Plays, 40-40 Seasons. And the stories behind baseball's rarest feats. And if you have enjoyed this conversation, and I, I know that you, you have, because if you haven't, you must be some kind of communist, because this has been good stuff. Uh, get out there, pick up this book, because we really have just scratched the surface. There are other topics in this book that I have not even addressed, and the topics that we have addressed, Joe goes into much further detail and, and has a, a you know an array of uh, terrific anecdotes and quotes and facts and statistics. It's it's just a, a, a terrific experience. The immaculate inning. He's Joe Cox. Joe, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast, and let me make my reservations now for you. When your uh, next book comes out next year, we're going to have you back on. We're going to do it again, and let's just make a habit of it and, and do it every time. Ricky, man, there is nothing that would uh, make me happier than to be the Larry Bud Melman of uh, Super <laughs> 70 Sports. <laughs> well, you know, I already consider you the Larry Bud Melman of my life. So if uh, we can just take that and bring it over into the podcast realm, I, I, I think that's magic. Thank you, my friend. Proud of uh, all your good work and excited to keep listening to these awesome podcasts. All right. Thank you, buddy. What a pleasure to have one of your best friends on the podcast and for the second time in just a wonderful book, The Immaculate Inning. So many interesting tidbits and nuggets in there and written in a way that... Uh, Joe brings it together as 
the talented writer that he is. You're going to want to check it out. Available at fine bookstores everywhere. My guest next week also has a terrific new book that's out. Todd Radom is going to join me. He's going to become the first three-time guest in the history of the Super 70 Sports Podcast. And we're going to talk about his great new book about uniforms. The good, the bad, and in some cases, maybe the ugly. The book is called Winning Ugly. And Todd Radom, one of the great graphic artists in the world of sports, he's designed so many logos and uniforms through the years. The perfect guy to discuss all things uniform with. We're going to have him on the podcast next time, and it's going to be a blast. Until then, I'm Ricky Cobb reminding you to never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast.